Good morning, church. We get to be in the book of Acts this week, and then we're going to take a long pause until the beginning of next year. Today, we will conclude chapter 16 in the book of Acts as we have seen the word of the Lord, the gospel proclamation has been spreading and flourishing among both Jews and Gentiles. Mike last week unpacked the prior passage and we studied regarding Lydia's conversion. Today, we're going to study some very unfortunate circumstances for Paul and Silas that took place in Philippi, the place where the church that received the letter known as Philippians was written to, and yet those unfortunate circumstances, while seeming dire and awful, produces something and creates something that makes something beautiful. It's almost like God makes beautiful things out of dirt. He doesn't just take lemons and make lemonade. He takes trash and turns it into time machine fuel. Back to the future reference, anyone? Mr. Fusion, home energy right now? Okay, that's fine. If you don't understand that reference, I failed you as a pastor. So let's begin chapter 16, verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. Now, let me first point out as we study this, Luke, who writes the book of Luke, and then he writes the book of Acts, is penning this letter. And he writes from a firsthand eyewitness perspective saying that once when we were going to a place of prayer, this is the doctor, Luke, who was considered a great historian, writing this letter to a guy named Theophilus, explaining all that had happened with the apostles as the Spirit of God had moved and the gospel had started to spread throughout Asia Minor and to the ends of the earth. So Luke says, once they were going to a place of prayer, they were met by a female slave. This probably isn't the best way of interpreting what this woman actually was, because on the one hand, yes, she was someone enslaved by an evil entity, but she's really acting more as a medium or a witch. She would earn a lot of money by predicting the future, and those exploiting her would profit very, very much. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us, Luke writes, shouting, these men are the servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, as, as Luke writes this, as we read this without, I mean, we just read the entire thing, so we know where this ends up, but it's easy to look at this in two different ways. Like this woman who was yelling these things was furthering the cause of Christ. She was getting people's attention and letting them know that these apostles and these messengers were going to come and spread the word of God, saying that they were going to tell people how they could be saved. This sounds great. This sounds helpful. But what we will read is that it was probably another way of interpreting, which is that she was warning people about these men because they think they know how to be saved. Now, in our culture, we kind of look at people like that, if, if we're coming from this woman's point of view, as the holier-than-thou group. Did you just get someone's face pictured in your mind? The people that culture demonizes, because these people come off as harsh, as exclusive, as hypocritical. And because of this, society throws the baby out with the bathwater, and here's what I mean. With this type of lens, culture, that anyone who uh, identifies with Jesus Christ is a bigot. Now, there are a lot of people in this room who identify with Jesus Christ, and I wouldn't say that when I look at you, I see you as a bigot or as a liar. 
or even as someone who thinks they're better than everyone else. The other thing the culture might say about the holier-than-thou group is that they're closed-minded to anyone else's beliefs that are not Protestant. The problem with this is it doesn't take into account the message at all. It just looks at the messenger, and let's be honest, we're messed up, church, each of us. It finds our shortcomings, which there are a lot of them. And while each of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ ought to act like it, we, as we talk about all the time, are in process. And that process means that none of us have arrived. So what I'm attempting to communicate is that while our example and lifestyle ought to be in line with what we believe, that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose, that he rules, that he's coming back, we are in process. And that process, again, means that we haven't arrived. And if we're honest, we don't act as based on what we believe, not just some of the time, but most of the time. And yet the message of the gospel, the good news, is refining us. It's making us new. It's replacing old habits and priorities and wants with God's heart, God's will, and God's plan. But again, it is a process that takes time. Here's how long it takes. A lifetime. That's how long it takes. But this medium, this witch, was essentially following these messengers of the Lord around and discounting them possibly and probably with her tone, which we can't necessarily read, and description of what she said they were doing. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, NIV, the translation that we read this from, the one I'm reading from, says that Paul was so annoyed and while I recognize and unfortunately identify with this feeling more than I should, the word really means more of disturbed. Paul was so disturbed by this person saying what she was saying that he identified what was wrong with her, that she had a demon possessing her. Now, our application is not every time we get annoyed to tell the demon to leave people, okay? You're on the road power of Christ compels you. No. If someone annoys you, don't exercise the demon. This isn't how we interpret it. This isn't how we see this text. Paul, an apostle, someone that, that God had chosen, was disturbed, and he recognized that this woman was possessed by this demon. This is what an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ can do, according to Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Mark writes, he, Jesus, appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And Paul did this through the disturbance, not in the force, but in a spirit that made him realize where this ongoing opposition was coming from. Verse 19, when our owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. This woman who had been possessed now had been freed through Paul's authority and annoyance, disturbance, but now this woman who had been enslaved by these greedy Romans was no longer fortune-telling, and this was going to cut into their bottom line. And so they took great offense to this. 
as then they decide to be snitches to the magistrates, the Roman authorities of Philippi, and they don't complain about their loss of income because that really wouldn't have gotten any support from the authorities. They decided instead to tattle on the disturbing of peace and violating Roman customs. So then what happens? Verse 22, the crowd joined in on the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. You then see this crowd join in on the onslaught against these messengers from the Lord. And because of the majority of people being upset by this, the city officials then order Paul and Silas to be flogged, stripped, beaten with rods, and imprisoned. And this is kind of first century being canceled. It's just not emotional, it's physical. Depending on how you see yourself, you might identify with Paul and Silas here because they were truth tellers, they were sent from the Lord, and they were Jews. So it'd be easy to identify with one of these three entities. So let's pull them apart. We tend to find our identity in what we do. Let's be honest about this. We tend to find our identity in what tribe we belong to, what tribe we've been adopted by. And some of us tend to find our identity in the ancestry that we come from. Something you do, or at least you think you do, maybe you think you're telling the truth. Maybe you think you are part of a specific group of people. I'm a Christian, or I'm a uh, Hindu, or I'm a Muslim, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, I'm an independent. Or maybe it's your nationality and where you come from that you find your identity, your blood ancestry. And it would be easy to view this passage and attempt to argue or use this passage to justify or even victimize an action or a people. But here is what I think we as a church have been trying to perfect, and guess what? We're nowhere near this. The gospel is more important than your natural preferences. But God's will and sanctifying work is that the gospel would become your preference in all things. So for Paul and Silas, who are spreading the message of the gospel, the good news, Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he's coming back, that he rules and reigns. As a messenger of the Lord, they were also Jews, and the message was more important, check it, than their rights. The message was more important to them than their comfort. The message was more important to them than their own lives. That is why Paul, who was stoned in Lystra, if you remember, after getting stoned in Lystra, what's he do? He goes back into Lystra to teach about Jesus. Are you kidding me? And here we have Paul and Silas being stripped, flogged, beaten, imprisoned, and that doesn't really stop what God is doing. It just adjusts the geography of where it's happening. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, let's be clear. If Jesus can rise from the dead, this can happen, okay? For the record. While they were in prison, they were singing hymns to God with other prisoners around hearing them sing hymns to God. This is a great illustration of joy and peace in the middle of suffering. This is what a believer possesses 
even when life is absolutely terrible, God and his grace and the relationship that can be one that we have if we've trusted Jesus, it can be what we focus on. Now, I'm not saying we do this well. I'm not saying I do this well. What I'm saying is it's possible. Now, I became a Christian in 2001. Woo, that was a long time ago. And Barbara's like, hold my grape juice. Now, I became a Christian after a lot of discussion about Jesus, a lot of study specifically about the resurrection, and I was sitting in a pew about as far back as Mark, Bianca, and Allie right now. Wave your hands. That's where I was sitting, not in this church, but in a church about that distance from where the guy was preaching. And when the song, Shout to the Lord, came on, an oldie, but a goodie, it began to play, and this worship pastor named Avery was leading the song. And this beautiful young woman, who was just my friend at the time, named Aaron Deal, who's now Aaron Riley, right over there, were leading this song. I felt all warm, y'all. And perhaps for the first time in my life, I didn't feel alone. And in that moment, for whatever reason, I felt like God essentially said to me, I've got you. I'm with you. Now, fast forward about eight years. That was back in 2001. Fast forward about eight years. I'm sitting in my office. I get a phone call from a police officer, and the police officer says, what's your relationship to Mike Riley? And I said, well, that's my father. And he said, I'm very sorry to let you know, but we found him dead on his bathroom floor in Arizona. And in that moment, I got pretty mad. I got pretty mad at God. I got pretty mad about the idea that my father had passed. And one of the things that came to mind right away was the reality that I'd shared with my father who Jesus was, and my dad put his hand out often and said, Tim, I don't care. I don't want to believe. And that was absolutely true. He didn't want to believe. So I'm sitting in my office. I get this call, and I'm supposed to meet with that same worship pastor who was singing the song back in 2001, Avery. And he, he and I were supposed to meet uh, and study the Bible that day. And he calls me, and he goes, hey, do you want to meet? And I said, not really, but I do want to worship through music. And he said, come on. And so about 7 o'clock that night, we opened up the church that we were at at the time, and he grabbed his keyboard, and then a bunch of other people showed up, and we started to sing praises to our God. And I remember sitting in the seats, and I remember Shout to the Lord came on. And I remember uh, I, I got very teary-eyed, and I got very, uh, I just kind of realized in that moment, man, God's the one who saves, I don't do it. And it was very freeing. And without me even realizing, there was a, a guy a few seats behind me who had come to it, had heard, he came to support me. He didn't know Jesus. His name was Corey. And he sat in the back and I had been studying the Bible with him and telling him about Jesus. And he watched me grieve my father. He watched me worship my heavenly father. And I didn't even know he showed up. And then the next day, or a few days later, when he and I met to study the Bible, God had done a work in him, and he saw something in that worship service. He saw something in, in the struggle that I was going through. He saw something amongst the people that were worshiping God, even though I had just gone through something really hard and terrible. And Corey came to Christ not too long after that. Now, I attribute this time of my life where my father passed away as the time God really got a hold of me. Up until this time, I had believed. I had acknowledged 
that Jesus was Lord. I was about telling others about him. If you sneezed, I was like, God bless you. So about God, let's go. But I hadn't truly repented. I believed, but I hadn't truly repented. I hadn't changed direction. I hadn't, as we talked about weeks ago, allowed God to overrule me. I was still king of my castle, lord of the manor in my own life. And when my dad passed away, I realized that I had been treating Christianity like so many other things in my life, like a fad. But following Jesus, church, is not a fad. If God was involved in your rescue, God saves and he secures. But for many people I have known, and honestly, for the first many years of what I thought was my walk with Jesus, I had done it on my own terms. And really, instead of following Jesus, I had just told Jesus to come follow me. Paul and Silas had committed to Jesus. So much so that instead of complaining about their unfair treatment of being beaten and imprisoned, They saw the opportunity to worship and proclaim Jesus Christ. Now, during this impromptu worship service within the jail, the prison, an earthquake so powerful shook the foundation of the prison. The doors were rumbled open and the chains that bound the prisoners were broken. Now, while this earthquake seems supernatural, it is. As Mike pointed out last week, we focus on the text, not on the event. And I could go crazy attempting to figure out exactly how this earthquake shook open the doors and broke the chains, but that is not the point. What is the text pointing to and implying? That God set these prisoners free. But why? Verse 27, the jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? But the jailer knew that his sole responsibility was to make sure that the prisoners did not escape. And even if the prisoners escaped through a natural disaster, it was the jailer's problem and the authorities above him would then beat him and kill him if they escaped. So he was about to off himself, and yet Paul and Silas and the other prisoners all stayed. Why would this happen? I'm going to go with probably because God willed this. And Paul and the others sensed it. Now, why not run for the hills? Why not escape? Well, I probably would have, unless I had an overwhelming sense, a spirit-led conviction that God didn't want me to. So what happens? Verse 29, the jailer called for the lights. I was going to flip the switch, but there's no electricity. It's like, light. Rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer was so relieved and surprised by this act of kindness to not flee out of what seemed like to the jailer as care for him that he knew that something was different about the prisoners. Whoever they represented was someone that he wanted to know. The jailer's response was, how can I be saved? And it shows that this event of imprisoning these messengers of the Lord, this earthquake, the supernatural opportunity to escape, and their unwillingness to escape through care for the jailer, all humbled him. He saw the truth of the gospel, not just in what they had said and sang, 
but through the response that was not natural to the circumstances. They proved over and over again that self-preservation, like everyone else ever, was not their main objective. It wasn't even to sell Jesus, as some might misunderstand evangelism. It was to be obedient to God and that that obedience was making the spreading of the message to anyone the Lord puts in their path the point. The jailer's response to this supernatural event and response, he then asks, how can I be saved? You know, I've never been asked this question by someone who genuinely did not want to know how they could be made right with God. When this question is asked, it's usually because they've attempted to earn their salvation. They've realized that it doesn't work or that they have attempted to put their identity in created things and that created thing does not suffice and it does not satisfy. That it could not hold the weight of that person's identity. And this is the fundamental problem that every human being experiences. Do we find who we are in Christ or in something uh, or anything else? This is the fundamental question of society. This is the fundamental question of mankind. Where do we find our identity? And this jailer, while possibly, like any of us, when we first come to Christ, really just thinks about what we're going to be saved from. Oh good, I'm not going to hell. But ironically, God doesn't just save us from hell, he saves us to himself. And he puts us in right relationship with himself, and he makes us a new creation. Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household, when they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. They, Paul and Silas, replied to the jailer's question with the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus. Seems simple, right? Just believe. But I think most of us replace what belief means to trust something with just to acknowledge. I'll make fun of the people that are here only on Christmas now. A lot of them just want to acknowledge. But the reality is that we must trust this God whom we claim that we follow. Similar to my first few years of believing in Jesus, I hadn't repented. I hadn't truly trusted him. I just acknowledged what he had done, but it hadn't really changed who I was. And we live in a culture that wants to believe or they want to do stuff or they think they just need to do enough to get by, which I call the gospel of good enough which essentially assumes that as long as I acknowledge the right things and am not too bad a person, at least in front of others, then I'm good because I'm good enough. But the gospel has never, ever, ever been about, how, about people's goodness. It's about God's grace. And God's grace is not necessary if someone is good enough. God's grace is offered to those who receive it and realize that they are not good they are not good enough. They are not righteous on their own, but they believe, not just acknowledge, but trust that God's goodness is what they need. More than their effort, more than their actions, they trust that God supersedes them and overrules them and superimposes his son upon our sinful resume and it gets stamped clean and forgiven and righteous because we believe Jesus is enough. 
So that is what Paul and Silas communicate to this jailer and this family. This is what we communicate to you today and perhaps to your family. Paul and Silas then share more of the word of the Lord with this household so they could understand who Jesus really is. Now, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, uh, it's a broad idea. It's, it's known as evangelism and also discipleship. These are actions of the church. This is stuff that we want to do as a community of believers. But evangelism and discipleship tend to be misunderstood and defined differently amongst different congregations. Well, I don't want to pigeonhole everything that constitutes evangelism and discipleship. Let me give you some thoughts of what we do here. We want people to know Jesus. We want people to grow to look like Jesus, and we want people to show Jesus to as many as possible in both word and deed. But if we just say we want you to know, grow in, and show Jesus, that can be taken a lot of different confusing ways, can it? But church, nothing matters to us more than that every person that walks onto this campus would know Jesus Christ personally, intimately, experientially and progressively. This is why we quote Paul so often in his letter to the church in Ephesus regarding what we do as a body of believers. And I'm, I'm just taking pieces of it, but Ephesians chapter four, verse 12, Paul says, equip. And then in verse 14, he says, in the knowledge of the Son." Paul says a lot more, but I don't want us to skip over or de-emphasize just how important it is to know the Son and grow in our knowledge of him. This isn't just a sanctifying verse. This isn't just a verse that makes us holier as we pursue him. This is where justification comes from because it won't be from our actions or our perfect theology. It will only be by who Jesus is to us. What do you do with Jesus? Is he our savior? Is he our Lord? Or do we treat him like a buddy we call on when we need something? I ask a question like that and then realize I spend too much time thinking about how others might do that and am faced with the reality that I do this as well. But you know how I realized that I also do this? You know how God showed me that I also will ask a question like that and not really at first think about how I do this? through Daniel and not the Old Testament book. And we have tons of Daniels in this church, but I'm talking about Daniel Delwood. And the sermon's not about Daniel Delwood. It's about Jesus, like all sermons ought to be. But when I hang out with Daniel and we study and pick apart the word of God, he, who I hold in very high regard, even though I'm taller, is always questioning where he is falling short. And while some people who do this are insecure, Daniel is secure, not in his own abilities and effort, but in his God. The gift giver who he knows is refining him. And that refining work hurts sometimes because it requires us to admit and even confess that we aren't perfect. We fail and we have the opportunity to admit that among a community of other believers who know the gospel is not based on our ability to earn, but on the faith that God has already accomplished for us 
that we, what we could not accomplish for ourselves, which was Jesus lived the life we couldn't, died the death we should have, and physically rose from the dead. And we trust him and his grace, not our own effort. See, here's the thing about Daniel. He's vulnerable. He's open to correction. And he wants to grow. And as gospel-believing Christians, we can be vulnerable because we know that we're saved by grace, not by what we do. And so I pray that each of us would attempt to prove less and admit more that we are in need of grace because it is sufficient to save and sanctify us. And as we grow in the knowledge of the Son, we learn not only more about Him, but we deepen our relationship through trial and error with Him and with His church. Verse 33. I'm done talking about you, Daniel. So, At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The jailer and his family, after being taught about the truth of the gospel from the word of the Lord, took in Paul and Silas and not only bandaged and cleaned their wounds, but then he and his whole household were baptized because the word of the Lord was taught to them. Verse 32 is what says this. And because they believed and trusted, not just acknowledged that Jesus was Lord, they were baptized, their entire household. What a beautiful example of God reaching an entire home. And their commitment was to be baptized. To be baptized means you are symbolizing and identifying with Christ, his death, and his resurrection. This is an amazing story, church. This is an amazing example of God taking the bad. Paul and Silas being accused, stripped, beaten for proclaiming that Jesus was Lord. And then they were imprisoned. And God gave them the opportunity to escape, but really more an opportunity to share the gospel with the jailer and his family. And then that family and the jailer believed this terrible circumstance where Paul and Silas had to suffer for their obedience to God, God then uses to reach the jailer who then wants his family to hear about Jesus as well. This is what I mean when I say a dumpster fire that turns into a garden. This is what it looks like when you have a persevering faith. This is what it means when the gospel is our priority and obedience is our application. But church, let's be real. Not every family is like this. Not every family has every person within a household following and trusting and obeying Christ as Lord. This is a beautiful example, but this is not common. When I began thinking about planning a church about seven years ago, part of it was I wanted to have a place where my family could hear the gospel without fail all the time. I wanted a place where my family could be part of a community and could be cared for, not because caring for people saves you, but because the gospel is true. And the reality is that much of what I prayed for when it came to leading a church has come true. But that doesn't mean just because I prayed for that and much of it has come true that it's all frappuccinos and unicorns. 
Raising a family and wanting your children to love and trust Jesus is a big deal. It's a noble and godly pursuit. If you do not know Jesus and yet you're sitting with your family right now, they want you to know Jesus, don't condemn them for that. Love them for that because they care about your soul. But I think the thing we need to remember is this, who does the saving? It's not because of a sermon that anyone obeys and trusts Jesus. It's because God in his goodness chooses to open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the heart of the hardened. And why do we point out that he's the one who does it? So we won't begin to take credit for his work. Nor shall we feel guilty for someone denying Christ and blaming ourselves for doing something wrong. The past few weeks especially, I've had this huge compulsion to be praying for my children. There's a lot of them. <laughs> but also praying for the kids and the youth who are represented here at COV. And so that, that doesn't just mean kids that attend here. That means kids who are adults who uh, are elsewhere that are represented by the people that are in this room consistently. Now, I don't... I'm not gonna ask you to pray for my children and the, the other generations that are represented in this church because I think you can will anyone into the kingdom, but because I know that people prayed for me before I knew him. And because God in his goodness does the saving and the children and youth of this church are dear to us and they're dear to God, so I have an application for you. Would you be praying for the children and youth of this community? at least through the end of the year, all right? Small ask, you've got like a month. And if you're not sure what to pray for, and if you're ever in a Bible study and you're like, what do I pray? Pray for this. Pray for the youth and the children. And if you don't know their names, the children's director's in here. Ask her, she'll tell you. Or ask the parents and it'll get super awkward. Uh, excuse me, what are your kids' names? <laughs> but let's be praying for the community, for this new generation that needs Jesus as much as we do. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. The magistrates evidently believed that a severe beating and a night in jail was sufficient punishment for disturbing the peace. So they sent word to release both Paul and Silas, but look at how Paul owns them. Verse 37, Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, rut row, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. I don't know tone, but that's the tone I'm going to give it. Paul is calling out that these authorities abused and punished Paul and Silas out of turn because as Roman citizens, they were afforded a trial before any punishment should be given out. So Paul is calling out that they too did not abide by the Roman customs, which was the exact accusation made against them. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? It's a Lannis Morissette reference for some of you. But also, Paul knew that the church was being established was not only true, 
but wanted it to be respectable among the authorities and the public. This wasn't a bunch of rogue Jewish people stirring up things to get attention. God was establishing his church on the shoulders of the Jewish faith that many people had believed in and practiced. So Paul is calling out what is right among the eyes of the Romans because their traditions and customs were held in such high regard. Verse 38. The officers reported to the magistrates when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. (laughs) They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So the magistrates, with their tails between their legs, came and Luke writes that they appeased them by escorting them out of the city and probably apologizing for their misstep, but still requested that Paul and Silas leave the area, which they did after going back to Lydia's house and encouraging many of the believers there. What a terrible circumstance that God used to reach people for the glory of his name. This brings me to a story about a man named David. Not a, yeah, that I read about this past week, who dealt with suffering beyond what most of us could ever fathom. During the Vietnam War, David went through rigorous training to become part of the ultra-elite Special Forces team the Navy used on dangerous search-and-destroy missions. During a nighttime raid on an enemy stronghold, David experienced the greatest trial of his life. When he and his men were pinned down by an enemy machine gun fire, he pulled a phosphorus grenade from his belt and stood up to throw it. But as he pulled back his arm, a bullet hit the grenade and exploded in his ear. His entire face and shoulder alternately uh, was smoldered and caught on fire as the phosphorus that had embedded itself in his body came into contact with the air. David knew he was going to die, and miraculously, he didn't. He was pulled from the water by his fellow soldiers, flown directly to Saigon, and then taken to a waiting plane bound for Hawaii. When he first went into surgery, the the first of what would become dozens of operations, the surgical team had a major problem during the operation. As As they cut away the tissue that had been burned or torn by the grenade, the phosphorus would hit the oxygen in the operating room and begin to ignite once again. Several times, the doctors and nurses had to run out of the room, leaving him alone because they were afraid the oxygen used in surgery would explode. Incredibly, David survived the operation, was taken to a war that held the most severe burn and injury cases from the war. Lying on his bed, his head the size of a basketball, David knew he was pretty grotesque. And although he had once been a handsome man, he felt like he had nothing to offer his wife or anyone else because of his appearance. He felt more alone and more worthless than he had ever felt in his life. But David was not alone in this room. There was another man who had been wounded in Vietnam and was even even in a worse nightmarish sight. He had lost an arm and a leg. His face was badly torn and scarred. As David was recovering from surgery, this man's wife arrived from the States. When she walked into the room and took one look at her husband, not David, the other guy, she became nauseated. She took off her wedding ring. She put it on the nightstand next to him and said, I'm sorry, but there's no way I could live with you looking like that. And with that, she walked out the door. He could barely make any sounds through his torn throat and mouth, but the soldier wept and shook for hours. Two days later, he died. Three days later, David's wife arrived. 
After watching what had happened with this other soldier, he had no idea what kind of reaction she would have towards him, and he dreaded her coming. His wife, a strong believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, took one look at him, came over, and kissed him on the only place on his face that wasn't bandaged. In a gentle voice, she said, honey, I love you, and I'll always love you, and we can make it through this together no matter what it takes, no matter what the odds are. She hugged him where she could avoid disturbing his injuries and stayed with him for the next several days, watching what had happened with the other man's wife and seeing his own wife's love for him gave David tremendous strength. More than that, her understanding and accepting of him greatly reinforced his own relationship with the Lord Jesus. In the weeks and months that followed, David's wounds slowly but steadily healed. It took dozens of operations and months of agonizing recovery, but he lived. David could then see and hear. On national television, we heard David make an incredible statement. He said, I am twice the person I was before I went into war. For one thing, God had used my suffering to help me feel other people's pain and have an incredible burden to reach people for him. The Lord let me have a worldwide positive effect on people's lives because of what I went through. Listen to this. I wouldn't trade anything I've gone through for the benefits my trials have had in my life. Wow. And my family's life and countless teenagers and adults, and I've had the opportunity to influence over the years. David experienced a trial that no parent would ever wish upon their children, yet in spite of all the tragedy that surrounded him, God turned his troubled times into fruitful ones. Worship team, Neathlings, Andrew, would you come on up? What has happened in our own lives, the struggles that we have gone through, while not always being obvious to how it affects our relationship with God, can be used by God to deepen our dependence and reliance upon Him through His work, through His will, through His Word. And perhaps the suffering that we've experienced, or will experience, or are currently experiencing, is part of God's will to reveal His Son to someone. So this Thanksgiving week, church, where many of us are going to see friends and family if we like it or not. May we not forget that we are image bearers of Christ if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus. And may we be understanding that we're a new creation and be open and eager and willing to share the truth of the gospel found in the person and the work of Jesus with those around us. Let's pray. God, there's so much in your word, a story that I've read so many times and not seen so many of the little things that you did within that story to point to the grace of your son. And so God, as it's Thanksgiving week, I pray that you would allow those who are hearing my voice today to rest in the peace and grace that is given by you. And may we be conduits. May we be people who give grace to others. May we be prepared with an answer. May we realize that the suffering and the pain and the inconvenience and the dumpster fires that we've experienced can be turned into gardens. They can be used for the glory of your name. You can make beautiful things out of them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.